0: Welcome to Parlay Me Power Players. This is a podcast that explores the latest entrepreneurs, startups, founders, business leaders and even enterprises that are changing the game. We call them the disruptors. You might see them as your mentors or maybe even your colleagues but we are so excited to bring to you Each week, someone we find either fascinating, progressive, or someone that's really making changes in all kinds of industries. We are agnostic in what we cover, so we cover everything from mobility to AI to food and produce, you name it, we cover it. But most importantly, we want to showcase to you entrepreneurs that are really making a difference and making the world a better place. Hi folks and welcome to Parlay Me Power Powerplay's podcast. Today we have an extraordinary guest on the show. We have McKeever Conwell II or otherwise known by people familiar to him as Mac. Mac is the managing partner at Rare Breed Ventures, a pre-seed fund that invests in exceptional founders outside of large tech ecosystems and often earlier than anyone else. So unlike other pre-seeds, Rare Breed takes a concentrated portfolio approach to writing checks of up to 250,000K, so as being the first or one of first investors. Mac is a Baltimore native and comes from a technical background, graduating with a computer science degree from Morgan State University and working numerous developer and software engineer roles in both the government and national security sector. And has been building websites since he was a teenager. Yes, until moving into fund management roles, which we'll be talking about today. So prior to 2009, that does feel like a long time ago, but Matt co-founded his first tech startup called Given2. Given2, team successfully completed two accelerators, Accelerator Baltimore and Near Me Accelerator. Mac and his team sold the technology in 2014, and his next venture, Redberry, went through Dreamit Ventures Accelerator in Philadelphia. So Mac has been a guest on the Huffington Post Live several times. He's been featured in many media outlets such as USA Today, Washington Post, CNN Headlines, Black Enterprise, and today, Parlay Me Power Players, so we're very happy to have him. With Rare Breed Ventures, Conwell plans to invest in companies outside the biggest tech hubs at the pre-seed level. So he's applying his experience from TEDCO, and those that don't know TEDCO, it's a Maryland Technology Department Corporation, where he recently left a role there, and he's taking that knowledge he gained running the first state-backed pre-seed fund for women and minority-led startups. And applying it to this new VC phone. So, welcome Matt, to Parlay Me Power Players podcast.
1: Thank you so much for that long intro. You make me sound <laughs> way cooler than I actually am. So, thank you. Happy to be here.
0: Well, that, that's my job. But no, you have got quite um quite an elaborate uh pedigree, should we say? Or um, and I it's really interesting um your background being a technical founder and whatnot so i'd love to i guess um start off with talking about i guess overall your journey um so to speak as an investor Mm -hmm. and what brought you to starting a venture fund that truly focuses on really underrepresented founders and why did you feel compared to start rare breed now
1: so um my journey you know simplified was you know uh, I, I was a government contractor as a software engineer. Uh, I did that for several years. Um and during that time I had a good friend of mine. Uh his name is Patrick Jackson who is now the CTO of a startup in Silicon Valley who was all who was completely obsessed with being the black mark Zuckerberg, right? Like he was the first person I knew who built an iPhone app. So iPhone comes out in 7. He built an app in 08 right his first app wow. in a way. and so he was kind of the inspiration between me and a few of my other friends kind of breaking into the, the startup world and so in 2010 me and two of my best friends start a company together run that for four and a half years sell off the technology i started another company that doesn't work out i end up coming back home to, to baltimore and i got a job at a marketing firm for a year which was not the goal after being the ceo of two companies Um, And while I was there, something significant happened where the organization I worked for got a client that I didn't agree with ethically. Um, Mm -hmm. So I quit. When I quit at the time, I quit. I didn't have any plans or ideas of what I was going to do next. And I quit on a Friday. And the very next Monday, I got an email from the investment arm of the state of Maryland, the Maryland Technology Development Corporation, saying they were hiring. So I figured I'd try and get a job there. And so... Uh, four months later after interviewing, I landed a job. Um, but they told me I was not qualified for the job I applied for. So they ended up creating a junior position to bring me on staff. Right. Oh, wow. (laughs) Um, and then, uh, they, they, they brought me on to be part of the seed investment fund, which was, you know, specifically investing in early stage companies. But at the time they hired me in the early 2016, they were struggling to invest in more black led companies. And one of the things that companies in the local ecosystem were complaining about was this lack of access to friends and family capital. So that earliest capital to kind of get started and catalyzed. Mm -hmm. And so I ended up putting together a proposal for a pre-seed fund to do just that, um, which Tedco adopted and they let me run. And so I spent two and a half years running that program before uh, the state of Maryland, the governor and legislators, here in the state, put a million dollars in the annual budget to make it a long-term fund here in the state, making it the first and only state-backed pre-C fund, specifically for women and minority-led companies in the country. And then last June, um, I met a founder based in Dallas, Texas, uh, a founder of a company called RoboAmp, um, really amazing company, basically helps websites load faster. Um, Had revenue, had strong partners, was doing all these amazing things, but was having a really hard time raising capital, and I couldn't figure out why. And then I realized it's because he was a Latin, uh, founder based in Dallas, Texas. And I said, you know, there's ways to solve for that. So I started trying to help him raise some capital. And one of my advisors said, "Look, Mac, this seems like a really good company, but I don't want to invest in this one company. I want to invest in every company that you see." So. Here's some money, go raise a fund. I wasn't really interested in raising a fund at that moment because COVID was in full swing and, you know, wasn't sure how to go about doing it. But he pretty much, you know, pushed me over the cliff and said, go do it. You know, I had been talking about raising a fund for like two years, but like, who can really do that? I was very scared to try. Um, and I just got the push to do it. Um, and honestly, it's interesting, right? The thing... That catalyzed me to becoming an investor, a VC, when I got my job for the state of Maryland. And the thing that helped catalyze me to raising my fund is the killing of two black men by police officers. Mm -hmm. And so when I mentioned, you know, the company I worked for got a client I didn't agree with ethically, um, the week Philando Castillo got shot and killed in his car by a police officer was the same week My organization started soliciting the National Rifle Association for a contract, which has a history of not supporting black gun owners. So that's why I quit my job. And that's what led me to applying for the job at Tedco. Wow. When I was looking to work with this entrepreneur in Dallas, Texas last June, and I got pushed to raise a fund, that's shortly after what happened to George Floyd being murdered by a police officer which is also a moment in time where people were, there were funders out there who were looking to find diverse fund managers like myself to do a better job of putting money into diverse communities. Um, Mm. And so those are the two catalysts for me as a fund, as an, as, as an investor.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously these are, you know, significant events and, and really unfortunate um, but it seems like you were definitely there at the right time, if so to speak. And uh, there's still a lot of, lot of momentum and I hope that stays. Um, and I'm just thankful that there were investors like yourself able to like take action when it counted most. So I guess that leads me to my next question. It sounds like, but I'm not sure, but I'm going to ask you anyway. Did you always want to be an investor Um, like, because obviously you had like a technical background, you're like building websites, you're working for the government, um, national security and whatnot. And if so, how has your technical background, I guess, perhaps helped you make informed decisions as an early stage investor?
1: So, no, I didn't always want to be an investor. Like I didn't even know what an investor was until (laughs) 2000. 10 2011 right? Yeah. Um you know, yeah. like we had our company, we had started building our company like for a year before we even had a conversation about investors and what they were. Um, so no. Um, but you know, most entrepreneurs, once they go through the process and start talking to investors, most of us feel like we could do the job, right? You know, we all have friends who are entrepreneurs, we we know what a good company looks like, so sure I to do the job. I was no different, yeah. right? So, you know, I I truly believed I could. Um, I don't know if that's the right assumption. This job's a lot harder (laughs) than anybody ever, you know, conveyed to me. Um, But it's something I'm very, I I think I'm really good at. So it worked out. Um,
0: That's something I wanted to ask you, actually, like, because you have experience on both sides, the coin, so to speak, as like a founder and now investor. And I wanted to ask you, like, areas that you think people do take for granted. Like, you know, yeah, what are misconceptions you found um, since being on both sides?
1: Yeah, so I have this very unpopular opinion about it. And so Mm -hmm. my time as an entrepreneur, all it did was help me create more biases, right? Because... Mm -hmm. There are certain industries that I know so well inside and out because I was an entrepreneur in those industries or my friends were entrepreneurs in those industries that I now have, like, these ingrained biases about those industries that may may not be true anymore, especially, right? Because, like, markets change over time. And so I've had to get out of the way of my own biases as I've gone through this.
0: That's hard. That's hot, right? It's very
1: hard. It's very hard. And so, you know, there's this big wave of this push for um, operators turned investors. And for me, I actually don't think that's the best way to go unless you're going to invest in the market that you were operated in, right? Like if, you were fin- like if you ran a fintech company became a fintech investor, okay, I get it, right? But I actually think it's better, you're, the, the, the better skill sets to be either a sales or business development person. Because this is very much a network industry, and so the ability to not only network in the founders and network in the VCs, but also the network into other companies that could potentially be customers or partners for your for your portfolio companies and the companies you invest in, I actually think is a better skill set. And so, um, you know, that's this stuff I've had to learn over time. So like, I actually think my time as an entrepreneur initially made me a worse investor. The, the advantages you get to have, though, is the ability to commiserate with the founder. I have a founder vent to you and be able to understand where they're coming from. Right. And for them to believe you, when you say you understand where they're coming from.
0: Absolutely. 100%. And then I guess on the other flip side, what are the misconceptions you think that founders have of investors now that you're an investor? (laughs) Uh, I mean, it's kind of a thing. Like, are they all sharks trying to, like, you know, take a bigger piece of the pie than they deserve, or you know, um, what, what do you? Yeah, how do you kind of? What are your? I think what are your-
1: like some of the bigger misconceptions is one, being a VC is really hard. It's really time consuming. Um, right. the The amount of emails and meetings and things that I have pop up every day is astronomical, right? right? In ways that I didn't even think was possible. Um, the, the misconception that like, there are a lot of VCs, especially the, the up and coming, the emerging VCs, the ones who are on their earlier funds, um, who are basically entrepreneurs themselves, right? Like I'm basically running a new business. I'm starting a new company. I <laughs> am rare breed, So like I'm fundraising too. I'm right. finding companies and taking meetings and giving my time and I'm trying to deploy capital to companies at the same time. Right. Which is a lot for one person. It's a lot,
0: it's a lot right? You raise your fund, you launch, and then it's just go. It's like, yeah, it's, it's a lot. Um, I guess, I guess I kind of wanted to talk about something um, which you touched upon earlier. Um, in regards to why you um, look to set up this fund, and that you know a, a lot of founders struggle, well, um, minority founders struggle most of all with when they're raising family and friends rounds. And let's face it, that's how often a lot of startups get off the ground is they're lucky enough to have a circle of family and friends that can support them or give them, you know, that leg up, so to speak. So, you know, with this in mind, like, what do you think, I guess, contrib- you, you've been known to say that, like, obviously, minorities struggle with that, friends and family round the most, Um, you've said in past interviews. So what do you think contributes to that most? Is it the poverty cycle or is it education? Is it self-worth? Is it confidence? I mean, all this often leads back to the cycles of poverty, um, but what? why do you think this is happening that, Minority founders just can't. I mean, it's kind of obvious, but I just wanted to kind of touch upon it.
1: It really goes back to networks, right? So, you know, my dad was ex military turned postal worker. My mom was a bank teller, right? Mm -hmm. Their community and their networks were ancillary within their jobs, right? I live in a community where, you know, all my neighbors were blue collar workers, right? Mm -hmm. That's very different from somebody so like I take for example um I had a mentor of mine who I worked with at at Tedco right and mm-hmm. I'll never forget the day all of this became crystal clear to me was he was talking to me about his son he's like you know last year my son really was thinking about becoming a lawyer and I was trying to tell him he didn't want to do it so I called the, one of my friends and and basically just asked him like hey your mind my son interns with you for the summer. He wants to become a lawyer and I, I feel like he should get some experience. He's like, sure. Well, that friend he mentioned is not only a lawyer, but is one of the top lawyers in Baltimore and is on the board of multiple organizations and companies and wow. happens to be a tech lawyer who's a lawyer for all these amazing companies as well. Right. The ability to pick up the phone and have that conversation and get your child an internship is the difference, right? Like my dad didn't have friends and my mom didn't have friends where they could pick up the phone and be like, hey, my son's doing this. Can you help in a meaningful way, right? As opposed to like growing up in the community where your neighbor happens to be a dentist who just happens to have some disposable income and, has done some, in, some investments, maybe never invested in the startup, but invested money before. I was like, yeah, you know, I got, you know, some money I want to put to work. Here's 25 K. You know, I've seen you grow up, you're working really hard. Go start it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Which is, and, and, and that's the thing, you know, um, that's all you need sometimes to get kind of going. And yeah, so it's definitely, it's um network, it's crucial. And I guess, that's what's interesting, I guess, about the pandemic and whatnot is or it's kind of opened up a lot of people's networks in ways that it doesn't really matter where you are so much anymore. But it's very interesting. So your work at TEDCO, um, I want to talk a little bit about that um, and kind of, I guess, the challenges you faced or perhaps the greatest achievements you had in setting up um, the fund. So you helped launch the Pre-Seed Builder Fund which piloted in 2017, and the focus was supporting black founders um, before actually expanding into a wider group of disadvantaged entrepreneurs in general. So, yeah, what were, I guess, the biggest, um, I guess, um, you know, obstacles and uh, and what were your greatest kind of achievements uh, in setting up that fund?
1: There wasn't a whole lot of obstacles because, you know, they were looking for an answer and for something to do. Um, And and they were trying to figure out what was the best approach. And so I had my own theories on what the approach should be. And so when I put my proposal together for the approach, it was really about I didn't want to do an accelerator and I didn't want to do grants because those don't give the same signal as an actual investment. Right. Absolutely. So that was a big sticking point. And it needed to be a dollar amount that mattered. Right. So it couldn't be like five or 10K. Like, let's make it a dollar amount that matters. I don't
0: know. Those 5K ones we have to do like for six months to get 5K. Yeah.
1: I mean, like, what? I mean, they, they, they help, but like, it's,
0: they help. it's not,
1: yeah. it's not, It's not enough. And so what I did was when I put the proposal together um, and actually before I did any of this, I was actually at breakfast meeting with a good friend of mine. And I basically just floated the idea of doing this pre-seed fund and putting some money together. And it just so happened that that friend worked at a Black-owned bank in Baltimore. And I asked him "Did he think his bank would be interested. And he said, I think it would be interesting. Let me talk to my boss. And the very next week, I had a meeting with his boss, uh, a gentleman by the name of John Lewis uh, at Harbor Bank, the Harbor Bank of Maryland who said, yeah, I think we could do this. This is interesting. I like where your head's at. Let's work on this. So then when I was able to give the proposal for what I thought the fund could look like for my for TEDCO, I already had built in the Harbor Bank of Maryland putting up half the money for the first year.
0: Right. So you brought this opportunity to them. It wasn't something you just like they said, we need to set this up. You actually came up with the concept, found the backing for it, and implemented it.
1: A hundred percent. And so, wow. Uh, wow. you know, that, that was, you know, that the, there have been people internally at the organization who were who have been working towards this already. It was a conversation before I ever came on staff. I was just the person who took the steps to execute, right? Yeah, brilliant. And so, brilliant. Um, but, you know, understanding Tedco was already an organization that deployed capital on behalf of the state of Maryland, right? So it wasn't like I had to create something completely new I just created a new fund that was within an organization that already did this kind of work, right? Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, makes sense. Wow, that's fantastic. And then I guess were you there um, long enough to kind of, uh, you know, obviously give a lot of, well, not grants, so to speak, or uh, or fund, however you call it, fund a lot of entrepreneurs. Or how many did you did you oversee there? Um, different startups
1: and whatnot so during my time at tedco while working on the builder fund i helped fund 18 companies um before i transitioned to another part of the organization um but happy to say that that uh the builder fund is still going strong today so
0: nice nice um, well, this kind of segues way into my next uh, question, so to speak, and actually it's something you've brought up in the past. Um, you've once said that the average early-stage investment lasts longer than the average marriage in the United States. And this really made me think, I was like, wow, you're right. So, you know, it's it's a, it's a long-term uh, commitment most of the time. It's not this short fix. Um, so with this in mind, how important is it? I guess to know your investor founder before signing the dotted line, because in most cases, at least in marriage, you're kind of, you know, you're you're encouraged to date for at least one or two years before popping the big question. Um, but it seems these days that deals are so competitive, um, and that there's this urgency to close them super fast. So I guess I wanted to know, like, what's the ideal. I guess time frame, or at least, or how do you work in cementing that relationship um, between the founder um, and yourself to make sure that it is going to be worth being in a relationship for like 20 years or, or 10 years or whatever it is. No, pro- let's face it. Pro- I don't know what the average uh, marriage is in the United States. Maybe it's three years. I don't know, but you know, whatever it is.
1: So for me, you know, it's it's hard because, like, to your point, that rounds are happening very fast these days, right? Like, I've seen entrepreneurs close rounds in a day. That's the kind of stuff you yeah. used to see coming out of, like, Y Combinator. Now it's just happening out in the wild. Um, but generally speaking, for most of the companies that we invest in or that I invest in, because we invest so early, I typically get to spend some time with the founders to get to know them. Like, generally speaking, I'm going to know a company for three to three to six months before we ever get to that kind of like money conversation, um, that timeline is getting shorter and shorter. But, mm. you know, like, you know, I have a company in our portfolio, a company by the name of Buffalo Market. It's an amazing founder. Uh, the gentleman's is a Polish immigrant. Um, Adam, I, I love that dude. But like, when I met him, it was in October of last year. And when we made decide to commit to the investment, it was in January, right? The, the interesting part is, though, he raised a $1.5 million round in a day. Wow. If I had to just met him while he was during the fundraising process, I would have never been able to put money into that company. Right. But because right. he, him and his partner knew me as an earlier investor, they reached out to me early in their process. And that gave me the chance to watch him over a period of time and see how the company grows and get to learn about them and gain more and more conviction over those months so that I was able to make the investment, which was very different than a lot of the other investors he, he met that like they might have met him like the week before he started officially fundraising. They never had a chance unless they said yes right away. And then, then they like, they don't really have time to do diligence because they just met him. Right. And so that's one of the advantages of investing super early.
0: What of the advantages? well, that's it. Look, it's high risk, obviously investing early, but it's big returns um, if you if you get it right. So I guess um, I wanted to ask you just quickly because you you are focused on um, you know investing in startups that are not in kind of you know the big metropolis cities, so to speak, um, like tech hubs and like New York and Silicon Valley. Valley. So I'm interested to know like kind of what locations you're getting a lot of interest from or perhaps you're seeing as a new breeding ground for new founders. I guess the pandemic, it really doesn't matter where you are. Um, this may change in the next few years again, um, but at least for the last 12 months you could have been anywhere, <laughs> kind of as long as you had a great idea. Um, so, yeah, I'm just interested. Are you finding any trends for uh, people that are reaching out to you from certain areas?
1: No, I'm like, I mean – the majority of people who reach out to me are still from the major hubs, so like, wow. so like so so California, New York, are where I get like the most. But I will say the biggest trend is other investors out there talking to entrepreneurs that aren't in the tech hubs, right? Seeing competition for companies in Portland, for wow. companies in um, Atlanta, for companies in Miami, for companies in Oklahoma. Right. Like these are places where our companies in Ohio, Like these are places where, you know, the competition would be far more lower. Valuations were pushed down a bit. But now we're starting to see because of the, the pandemic, um, the um, a lot of investors openness to invest in companies that they haven't met in person or who are in different ecosystems has just risen to a level that, you know, I never thought was going to be possible.
0: Wow. Wow. Well, that's encouraging. That that is good. Um, so I guess I wanted to ask you also what industries or areas do you guys invest in? I, I heard that you don't do uh, life sciences, which kind of makes sense. It's very high risk, and um, but I'd love to know kind of what your thoughts are on that. But yeah, what what specific areas do you invest in, or are you agnostic?
1: So we're agnostic. I mean, we The only thing we do is that we don't invest in life sciences, but we invest in just about everything else, right? So um, well, yeah. we're very open to all kinds of things because the, the three things we care about the most are um, customer acquisition, experience, and retention. You can show me you can do those three things. You probably have, and, and you're in a big enough market, you probably have a shot to win, right? Mm. Which is... Um, which allows me and my team to look at companies from a standpoint where it's no longer based on our biases. Like you can strip your biases away when you focus around those three pillars.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And then I guess um, what kind of uh, founders do you look for? Cause you say, well, it's underrepresented. So it's black, it's minority. Um, do you kind of classify it in a certain Certain way, how you describe who, who, what underrepresented founders you look for.
1: So, we actually don't have a mandate for underrepresented founders, we invest in everybody a rare breed. The work I did for the okay. state was very specific, but for a rare breed, we invest in any and everybody, right? And so,
0: okay, well, I, my, my apologies, <laughs> I for some reason thought you were minority based. I guess that's because you work with Tedco, okay? All right, yeah, got it.
1: Um, And so, you know, for us, what we're looking for is just really exceptional founders building exceptional companies. And that's what everybody says, right? But like every deal and every founder is different. And so the reason why we invest in one company can be completely different from the reason we invest in another, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Take a company like Rebundle. Rebundle Rebundle.co, they make plant-based biodegradable braiding hair. Three women based out of St. Louis really amazing company doing something that like it's really incredible like who makes hair plant-based hair like they're, they're making hair out of plants like it's incredible wow. you know most synthetic wow. hair is made out of plastics right Um Why? and juxtapose that with um, a company um scholar me scholarme.co um soon to be changing the, their 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 company name but you know that's a founder who i met when he was in high school um, who got twenty five thousand users in his first three months of building his product because he figured out a hack using Vimbo.
0: Okay, and I invested in him
1: because he was like one of the smartest people I ever met.
0: God. how extraordinary! Oh, I love it. I love it. You, yeah. I mean, obviously Parley, me, we meet founders every second day from different walks of life, and it is. It always makes your mind boggle what people come up with, and um. So it's brilliant. I I guess I wanted to ask you since you have considerable experience like working government, which we all know can be as you know, could be a lot of red tape and a lot of processes and whatnot, which does help you, I'm sure, as both a founder and an investor. But what key takeaways, I guess, or learnings have you gotten from working within government organizations that has, I guess, helped you perhaps with your role as an investor?
1: It's taught me that I never want to work with a government organization.
0: <laughs> <laughs> You're like never again.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know the the being too restrictive in the guardrails that you have changes the port changes the the construction of your portfolio as an investor, right? Mm-hmm. And so as long as you have. as long as you have a clear thesis around how to construct a very viable portfolio to bring the returns you need for your investors, then it can work. But sometimes you can put so many guardrails around and be so tied to certain strategies that you actually end up missing out on amazing companies, right? Um, Great example, right? So I'll give you an example. So um, there's... Another investor I know who missed out on this amazing company, right? And basically uh, what happened was somebody hit him, you know, reached out to him and said, Hey, got this amazing company growing super fast. Would love to know if you want to be in. And he said, Well, the company's value is six hundred million dollars. That's way too high. There's no way I can ever invest. Plus, we do early stage stuff anyway, so that's not what we do.
0: Mm.
1: Guess what company that was? That company oh. was Uber.
0: All right.
1: You could have put 10k into Uber at a six hundred million dollar valuation and still made out. Oh wow! So, keeping that in mind, the winners are always going to be the winners, and the ability to get into a winner, you never want that to be hampered by like these arcade rules that you set up for yourself. That's at least the least way I look at it as an investor.
0: Yes, yes, and a lot of times institutional money does come with a lot of, a lot of, um, yeah, roadblocks. And although, yeah, it's interesting. Wow, that's phenomenal. Wow, yeah. Okay, well, that's the thing. That's you know, you hit yourself over the head almost. You go, no, <laughs> but there's nothing you can do in those. Yeah, I mean, obviously, if you're a smart early stage investor like yourself, you hope that you'll see the opportunity and you'll take it. But, wow, that's quite the story. So I, I guess I perhaps you can share with our listeners some, I guess, key learnings um, that you found from being a founder. Um, you know, you've raised, you've exited, and, of course, you know, you've had some failures along the way too, which I guess makes everyone a better founder or better, in your case, investor as well. So I guess, like, when I say key learnings, just, like, um, what works and what doesn't, I guess, um, when you're raising. Um, exiting is a different thing, when in, knowing when to exit. <laughs> that's a whole that's a whole thing in itself. Um, but maybe we'll just talk about raising. Um, what did you find in, being a founder worked um, with trying to find strategies to raise? Um, how did you do it successfully? And what advice would you give to founders, perhaps listening on what to do, do's and don't.
1: Focus on customer acquisition, right? Like, like growth is the greatest answer to all of this. If you're growing fast enough, it doesn't matter who you are, where you're from, what you're doing. You The money will be there. But focusing too much on fundraising without all the metrics, um, you're going to have a harder time. And there are going to be people saying, well, there's plenty of other founders out there who didn't have metrics and raised a bunch of money. That's fair and that's true. But they didn't raise money because they had good business ideas. They didn't raise money because of their businesses. Again, this goes back to what we talked about earlier. They raised the money because of their networks. So you cannot compare what you're doing to what they're doing. Because if you don't have their network, well, you're not raising the capital. Because if all things are considered equal and I'm looking at both of your companies side by side, neither one of you deserve money. But you got good growth metrics. You got good traction money's there. And that was one of the hardest things it took for me to learn as an entrepreneur. And once I did, I was able to raise.
0: Yeah, it's so true. I, I, I find, at least in, you know, being a journalist for a lot of startup founders, so often before they, you know, minimum viable products, that's not even a thing. Like, you know, it's literally a concept and they're raising. And sometimes it's like, you've got to kind of, test you've got to dabble got to, you know get some kind of metrics do people actually want this product um, rather than assumptions and then just go out and raise it can be very dangerous so I would I would tend to agree with that um, so then I guess what sectors are you particularly excited about at the moment are there I, I know you guys are agnostic um, you, you mentioned an ed tech company that's really interesting and Um, But I'm just really interested to know, are there sectors that you're getting excited about at the moment? Blockchain's really, you know, finally kind of finding its momentum with NFTs at the minute. Um, What's kind of, yeah, floating your boat, so to speak?
1: Yeah, for for us, we try to not focus on sectors too much because then you start to create those biases again. Um, But I I do like uh, physical products in the hair care space. Um, yeah. Most companies Most funds are looking for the Next shade Moisture brand You know, the, the oils, the creams The consumables I'm looking more towards the physical products That help people take care of their hair I feel like that market's is completely underserved um, Really excited for things that are happening In fintech around Alternative assets uh, Democratizing access to different assets And asset classes um, Really interested in like The, the rise of neobanks and especially in emerging markets, um, you know, crypto. Everybody, everybody's interested in crypto. All yeah. kinds of crypto stuff, um, you know, things like that uh, are, are really interesting to me. And sustainability—the the, the cross section between sustainability and Gen Z. So products that cater towards the Gen Z consumers, and products that are catering to um, sustainable-minded folks. Are really really interesting uh and something that we're seeing a growing trend of and you know trying to get on that wave
0: absolutely the conscious consumer um i'm I'm very interested you are you have such a great rapport already in the industry and personality as well you have a lot of content you do a lot of podcasts you're very active on social media and whatnot I'm interested to know, kind of, for investors that might be listening to this as well, because it's founders and investors, obviously. Um, kind of what works for you guys, or what are you enjoying? Like this clubhouse, it's kind of padded off a bit in the last few weeks, but um, are you finding Twitter's working for you? LinkedIn, Instagram, uh, Facebook? I don't know if <laughs> anyone really uses all that anymore, but maybe. Um, but is there something you're interested in, uh, platform wise?
1: So. Twitter is my my go-to platform of choice. Um, that is where I've grown the most in my network, uh, followed with uh, Clubhouse and LinkedIn, right? That's where you go to grow your network as an, uh, an investor, right? Um, the place to be for the entrepreneurs, Clubhouse. So, you know, do the, the open pitch forums. And then yes. you got... Um, uh, 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 Instagram. A lot of founders on Instagram and so and TikTok, right? You'll you'll find really cool companies on TikTok or Discord, being on these Discord chats. Um, yeah. it's really interesting. But for me, I spend most of my time on Twitter.
0: Nice, nice. Yeah, I think definitely the VC space Twitter is the one. So, um, and I guess we kind of talked about it. I'll ask you anyway. But are there any? Uh, I guess we call them children. Um, because you are an early stage investor, so they are babies if not when you when you first come into contact with them, so to speak. But are there any um, children in your portfolio, one or two that you're particularly passionate about, you may not be able to call out a favorite or you might be able to? You did mention the EdTech one and the hair care one. Um, are there any others?
1: I mean, they're like kids. You can't pick favorites. It's not,
0: I know, right? it's not really how it
1: works, but... Um, you know, really cool company, unspun.io. Uh, it's a company that makes um, custom jeans, but really it's a, it's a manufacturing company. So they've created a process where you can get custom to measurement jeans and clothing in general in one piece with no waste. Really, really amazing company. Um, Good Milk, M um, Y L K. Co., Good uh, a company making plant based milks that have no preservatives and are actually healthy for you. You know, Oatly, everybody knows Oatly. Unfortunately, Oatly a lot of preservatives yeah. and gums and is actually terrible for you. Uh, the sugar okay. content in Oatly is actually really, really bad for you. Um,
0: okay. So, something
1: to watch out for. No, because um,
0: I've had a lot of Oatly, so that's good to know. So, so
1: watch out for Oatly, um, but good yes. milk good good mylk.co and then par with par with p-a-r-a it's a company that helps um gig drivers find the best routes and make more money right oh so just a few companies to drop out there
0: i like it i like it well there you go i'll be googling these in no time i'm sure everyone listening will be too so um we have two very important questions we always ask here at Parley Me, equally important, um, not really, but um, is there an entrepreneur that inspires you? And when I say an entrepreneur, it can be someone in your family. It could be someone we don't know or it could be like a Richard Branson. Um, it could be someone you worked with, a co a colleague of some type. Um, but is there someone, I guess, in your journey that you've kind of like, okay, that is what, um, you know, what a true entrepreneur is?
1: That is a great question.
0: I know it's a, it's a hard one. And again, like some people say, okay, my mom, my dad, or my, you know, my, my sibling of some, some sort. Um, Yeah. So I
1: would, I would mention Patrick who I mentioned earlier as he was the one who kind of catalyzed this. But if I think of somebody who I look up to, As an entrepreneur, really not so much as an entrepreneur, but somebody in the financial space, it would be Reginald F. Lewis. You know, being somebody who is from Baltimore, um, who is now creating a career within the financial space, um, Reginald F. Lewis is somebody who I look up to.
0: There you go. Well, see, it wasn't so hard, <laughs> and I'm glad you kept a Baltimore base. That's good too. Um, and then I guess if you were a bam- sorry, if you were a gambling man, and we're not endorsing gambling in any way here, but if you were, would you be a blackjack, a roulette, or a poker player?
1: Uh, I'd be poker.
0: Poker. Okay. 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 A little bit of, a little bit of strategy, a little bit of luck. <laughs> <A focus base. laughs> that's great. We always like to ask that like, there's an element of risk, definitely in all gambling. It's definitely being an early stage uh, investor there. Is how, um, how should people contact you? Do you like Twitter, LinkedIn, cold emails? What's the best method method to get to you?
1: Best way to get to me is on Twitter at MacConwell, M-A-C-C-O-N. W-E-L-L, just reach out to me on Twitter. Easiest way to get to me.
0: Perfect, perfect. Well, thank you so much, Mac, for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure hearing what you're building. Um, You're doing phenomenally well, and I can't wait to learn more about your journey and talk to you maybe again in another year's time and see what you're still building then. So thank you so much for your time today.
1: Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Absolutely. Thank you, Mac. Thank you.